All right. Jack, thank you so much for joining us today um, on the stage. So, Jack, you, of course, work at Wayfair, and I'm sure um, many of the audience can relate to me when I say I've bought a lot of stuff on Wayfair these past few years. Um, and I was interested to notice that my most recent purchase, which is a set of nightstands, was built in Vietnam. So we were talking a little bit earlier about how um, in the furniture e-commerce space, people are really trying to move towards um, nearshoring or reshoring or kind of just moving away from the moving away from manufacturing in China specifically. What exactly has been your perspective or experience um, and what are you seeing in the industry around this? Yeah, no, thank you know, thanks for having me and uh, make sure you put a, uh, a review on the website. So, <laughs> but um, overall, yeah, we, I would say in 2018 is when you really saw a transition away from China um, with Southeast Asia, other countries, Vietnam, uh, mostly seeing the benefit of it. But I think with the most recent supply chain issues and uh, everything that we've experienced in the last 26, 28 months, you are seeing people somewhat reconsidering what products they could bring back to this region or even the states. Um, I guess my view on it is it's going to be very hard to overcome China and their scalability and their um, capabilities. Um, as you continue to see maybe a slowdown or longer transit times, maybe it'll open up more opportunities for other countries to kind of take some of that um, manufacturing away. But overall, I mean, for the products that we source and the suppliers we work with, um, you know, we do still consider China, mainland China being the market along with um, Southeast Asia mm -hmm. being the main markets that um, we're going to continue to see products roll into from. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So where any any country in particular in Southeast Asia? V Vietnam took, um, you, you've seen a lot of, not a lot, but you've seen uh, the most significant shift into Vietnam, Indonesia. Mm -hmm. um, you have seen some manufacturing come back to Mexico. Um, the one market I'm really intrigued by is Africa. Um, oh, yeah. It's going to be, you know, maybe a little bit less labor. Um, it's, you know, the infrastructure needs to be built up. There's some uh, geopolitical issues there also. But over time, that could be a market, in my opinion, that may actually rise up um, with the yeah. location being close to the uh, North America and Europe. Um, you know, logistic wise, it would make sense. Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like especially, you know, when we look at some of these other other markets, uh, you know, you have more availability of raw materials. Maybe there's, you know, a little less competition, especially we've seen these past 18 months or so that um, nail shortage, lumber shortage, just a shortage of everything, which I'm sure has really been um, impacting you guys in the furniture e-commerce space. Yes. And I mean, with the conflict with uh, Ukraine and Russia, you're seeing mm -hmm. less uh, timber for pallets. So anything that could go wrong has been going on. So you, you never know what obstacles <laughs> you're going to face next and where it's going to come from. Yeah, I'm talking. I'm talking pallets in a in about ten or twenty minutes. So stick around if you want to hear more about pallets. Yeah. Perfect <laughs> but, time um, to tee it up. <laughs> but um, I wanted to ask you more about. Uh, we were when we were talking. You mentioned how uh, more companies are really looking into Savannah and Charleston, sort of like the East Coast yeah. ports, because that's where your distribution centers are. Um, it seems like those companies that have shifted to the East Coast ports really convenient timing, you know, these past, this past year with all the craziness at Long Beach, LA. I guess, could you uh, talk a little bit more about the rationale behind um, that focus on the East Coast ports and 
the distribution network out there? Yeah, for e-commerce to continue to grow in popularity and that you need to be centrally located to the population. So with the majority of the concentration of population in the States and even in Europe and in Western Europe, um, it makes sense to put your fulfillment centers where you could hit the population. Mm-hmm. Um, we we could hit with a small parcel coming out of our Cascade forwarding facilities, we could hit 95% of the pop- U.S. population in two days. So mm-hmm. um, we want to make sure that e-commerce, covid accelerated the growth of e-commerce, especially for the home market. We want to make sure that the customer, they're getting the same type of service and the same expectations of receiving the product. Mm -hmm. Um, I know myself, um, we just bought a house in August. We want the product when we want the product, even though I'm on the international side, even though I'm in logistics, um, it can get frustrating if you order something, you have to wait 8, 12, 16 weeks. So our strategy is to provide an end-to-end solution for our suppliers and not only making it better for our um, supplier as our customer, but also you and me, when we order the web or off of the Wayfair platform, mm-hmm. we're able to get the product in a, um, you know, a sufficient amount of time. Right. Right. Um, yeah, it's definitely something, um, what, and, and, and the other part of that is, is that, uh, you know, maybe pre-2020, it was very easy to truck all of that from the West Coast to the East Coast. But now with uh, kind of craziness going on in spot rates, which seems to be cooling down a little bit, um, you know, retailers can't quite do the same, that same sort of West to East Coast movement. Yeah, it's definitely been challenging. And that's where I think we've been fortunate that we did have a strong fulfillment center on the East Coast. We we have fulfillment centers on the West Coast also. Mm -hmm. And we're continuing to penetrate more inland in uh, North America than that. So it's having a plan that if something goes wrong, you have another course of action. So um, for, you know, inland markets, we're not just going to come in through one port of entry. We're going to probably have two or three solutions where if, uh, you know, it's it's almost like whack-a-mole. Where yeah. you know it's it was L.A. Long Beach, New York was having some issues. Savannah, um, Savannah, I think we saw something from the Georgia Port Authority. They have only one ship outside, um, anchored. However, they have sixty-four thousand containers. So mm-hmm. it, it's got to be a collaborative effort, not only on the um, the steamships, the ports and terminals, the drivers, but also on the um, importers to make sure that you're getting the product off the ports getting into your filling centers, unloading it so you could free up that equipment so your partner carriers could be successful. But um, we've been very fortunate that uh, we have we have a really good partner partners on the steamship and on the dray side, and we've also engaged um, at higher levels with ports and terminals um, to make it beneficial for everyone. Right, yeah, and that, that kind of leads into my next question for you. Um, it seems like, you know, so many e-commerce companies have sort of faced this issue where, they grew so much in the past two years or past year or so at the same time where there is that challenge to get carrier space on steamships, on trucks. How do you balance, I guess we can start with ocean because, yep. you know, why not? Um, I guess what has been the experience um, in the e-commerce space when it comes to the steamships and trying to secure space on those ships? Uh, you know, we see blank sailing news all the time. Yeah. What's been your experience with that? Yeah, it's... Um it's difficult, but you need to have a transparent relationship. Um, it's got to be a mutual game. Uh, it's, it can't be buddy-buddy. Uh, you have to have those tough conversations, and you have to have a strong relationship so you, you know what each partner needs to be successful. The, for us, in my opinion, once again, it's about just creating relationships. It's very generic, but you end up working with these individuals a lot more than 
or you communicate with those individuals more than your own family. I mean, a lot of people are working remotely, but it's got to be mutual gains, not only on the business side, but on the personal side where you don't have to dance around what you need. And you could tell your partner, whether it's a steamship, a dray provider, uh, ports and terminals, whomever you're working with, this is what I need. How can you help me get there? Um, you're not always going to get the answers you want. There's a lot of uh, variables that you can't predict. Um, I don't think anyone, maybe people did, maybe I'm wrong, but you know, the extent of the shutdown that we're seeing in um, the northern ports in Asia is very alarming. Um, the ports are open, but you can't get the drivers to the warehouse. So um, in our opinion, the better communication you have with the steamships in particular, the more willing they're not going to um, maybe hamstring you when the contracts come in. Um, they know the trend's probably better than anyone just because of what they do. So they can almost almost predict what's going to happen for you before you do. So the constant communication, we've seen benefits of when contract negotiations come in, when you need um, X, Y, Z, they're mo more willing to work with you because it seems like you could help them control their assets better, or you could um, increase the velocity on those assets so they can make more revenue and they could get it back to Asia to load up again and mm -hmm. service the customer. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And on the uh, carrier relationships with drivers, I mean, I imagine you've been working with a lot more uh, owner operators and, you know, some more on the spot market than you've been used to, I, I assume, uh, you know, pre-2020. What's that been experience been like? Yeah, it's, um, we really, we love working with asset providers, but over the last 12 to 18 months, I would say we did pivot more to using brokers. Um, you did see a lot of owner operators go out and gain their own authority. Um, my fear is with the downtrend in volume right now, can they maintain their business or what's going to happen to them? So are they going to begin to give up their authority so, um, and go back to um, another carrier, you know, the another agent, so to speak, or are they just going to retire? Um, the driving age, you know, the age of the driving population is growing. Yeah. Um, so are they kind of just... Kind of, increasing their nest egg, so to speak. I mean, the market's hot. I mean, it's yeah. some of the rates that we've seen increases in, it's pretty substantial. So either way, my fear is that the, the next eight to 12 weeks are going to be very telling on the drag market. Um, can the owner operators maintain, the small owner operators maintain it? What's going to happen with these brokers? Um, it's very easy to be successful when the market's in your favor, but did you proactively secure enough of your uh, revenue to kind of go through the dark periods. Um, right. Once the ports open up in Asia, we're expecting a, a surge of volume and that's kind of where we're going to need those one or two trucks. And Drage has predominantly be, been smaller uh, companies that only have a few drivers. So it, it's going to be very interesting what, what goes on. But, you know, we, we feel secure with the way we presented or the way we allocated our volume and gained the capacity that we should be able to, um, you know, we're not going to fully mitigate all the uh, issues that we may experience, but we should be in a good spot to, you know, continue to provide good service for our suppliers and our end users being us. Yeah. 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 It seems like once that, um, that shipment that all of those shipments that are being, that's kind of being pent up in the Chinese ports, once that's kind of unleashed, that seems like that might be, I mean, in my perspective, it kind of seems like it's the last hurrah in some ways for a lot of these drivers. I guess, like, what what are you kind of forecasting or what's, what's kind of your opinion on that? Um, like, what, what do you think that last kind of, um, what are you forecasting for when those uh, that last kind of shipment comes out or when 
those ports reopen. Yeah, well, I, the market is definitely going to be in the carrier's favor, we believe, till tw- through 2023. Mm-hmm. Um, I think somebody, you know, the previous two speakers go mentioned Shelly. Um, to have your accuracy of your forecast, your bid being only 50 to 60 percent, it causes a lot of issues. Um, seeing the amount of time drivers need to spend at the port looking for chassis. Um, I'm on Twitter a lot. You're, you know, there's some really good Twitter handles that kind of give you real life in the moment yeah. feels of what's going on. Um, we don't think that's going to improve. Um, there, My concern is not so much driver capacity, it's having the equipment. It's having labor at the warehouse to unload that equipment. It's making sure that the geopolitical issues that we're experiencing um, will hopefully settle down and consumer demand will go up. Um, you know, Wafer, we do have different price points where, you know, that's kind of where we feel good about it is if you need a couch, you need a couch. You may not spend five grand on a couch, but, you know, if that's your price point, we have it. But if, you know, the market's kind of hitting your wall a little bit harder, you may just cut back on how much you're willing to pay for that couch. You know, we, we have those. So yeah. it, it's making sure that we have the assets to successfully deliver from the port into our fulfillment centers and to get it to our end user. So, um, you know, we, we are expecting, we're, we're expecting, a, you know, difficulty over the next 18 months. Right, right. Yeah, it definitely seems like there is, everyone's kind of talking about this coming recession, the bloodbath, even yep. as some of us have been saying at Freight Waves. Um, what, yeah, it seems like kind of everyone has a different perspective. You could look at, you could look at inflation through the, what's happening in oil. You could look at, you know, inflation that's happening kind of broadly throughout the, the entire economic sector. Um, it seems like there's kind of a different take on every single... Every Everyone has kind of a different forecast, but yeah. it, it makes sense at, at a company like Wayfair where prices are a little bit lower, even affordable for a journalist like myself that, um, you know, it would... You guys would be able to weather some of that a little bit easier. It, I mean, historically, in my opinion, Americans, they want goods inexpensive. Um, I do think, you know, we just had our way day event. It's two days. Um, those two days were in the top four of our highest revenue days of sales. So, and looking at it, I think the consumers change. They're going back to be more and more disciplined on how they spend their um, at their money, their extra money. So you are still seeing people, the home um, furnishing market. It's about 800 billion right now by 2020. By 2030 with Western Europe and North America, we're expecting it to be over a trillion. So either way, you are seeing people, I think, become more disciplined again in their spending habits. But once they do need products, they need to come somewhere. Mm-hmm. And that's where our platform allows people to get very good products, very high quality at a fair fair price. Right, right. Definitely. Well, that's about all the time we have for today. Jack, right. thank you so much. Great. Right, thanks, Ray. Mm-hmm.